0: The preachers are generally illiterate. Few are possessed of good common English learning, and there are also some that can neither read the scriptures nor write their names. Learning with them as a body is rather ridiculed than desired. And while they pretend to despise all human knowledge, they profess to be led and directed by the Holy Spirit, both in desiring the office of an elder and in their public
1: performances. From Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, this is the Level Paths Podcast. My name is Chris Weigel, and we're glad you've taken some time to join us. That was Rex Howe you heard at the beginning of the podcast, and you may be asking yourself, (laughs) who in the world was he talking about, and why was he so critical? On this episode of Level Paths, the role of the Holy Spirit in Appalachia. This will be somewhat of a history lesson. Rex Howe and Dr. Matt Shamlin are diving into how the Holy Spirit was discerned and how folks reacted to the Holy Spirit back when Methodists from the Northeast evangelized the Appalachian region in the 1800s. Those nearly 200-year-old missionary efforts were documented in a fascinating book. Rex and Matt are unpacking that history and how it impacts the Appalachian region today. Here's Dr. Matt.
2: Hey, here we are again with the Level Paths Podcast. It is great to be with my friend, Rex Howe. Rex, how you doing?
0: Doing well, brother. It's good to see your face.
2: Yeah, we are freshly back from the Southern Baptist Convention down in New Orleans. I am glad to be back in the Appalachian Mountains and not in New Orleans. How about you?
0: I've been trotting a little bit, brother. I've, I've been back in the homeland. I was up in Scotland for a week. For my PhD symposium. And then I uh, took a train eight hours south to Cambridge, England. And I have been for the past few weeks and for a little bit longer staying at Tyndale House. And if you don't know about Tyndale House, you want to go online and read about Tyndale House. They have a great ministry here for pastors and Bible scholars all over the world. There are people from all over the world here. I've met uh, pastors from Burma, pastors from South America. Richard Bacham came to coffee the other day, <laughs> but uh, you have unknown people and very well-known people all sort of converging here. Peter Williams and Dirk Yonkin are the principal and vice principal, and I've been so impressed with the resources, with the community, just the opportunity to study here. It's been phenomenal.
2: Ricks, I can't help but think of the show parts and recreation when Ron Swanson is uh, geeking out over this guy who is the foremost expert on this particular type of wooden chair and i think about these names that you've mentioned the only people that would know those are names that are in those scholarly fields and but that's the way that it is that's just the way that it is so today we're going to talk about the role of the holy spirit in Appalachia in the churches and the People of God in Appalachia. So, Rex, tell us a little bit about why we're talking about this and what got you excited about this subject.
0: Well, I think as an Appalachian, the Holy Spirit has always been a topic that I have been interested in ever since I was a little kid. And I remember talking to my grandma about her testimonies in church or when the preacher sort of shifted from talking in a normal way to talking in a way that was a bit special in church. And there was a you know, noticeable shift and I remember having conversations as a as a boy with my grandma about the Holy Spirit in church and through testimony and also you know the Holy Spirit in the role of the believer and that was a common conversation with her and with Sunday school teachers and things so I've always just had this interest and now I'm it's my academic interest as well and so it's personal and it's academic and at our conference Matt I, I presented a little bit on spiritual warfare and I really want to Start where I left off there at the conference and talk about a document that was written back in 1812, brother. 1812.
2: It's hard to believe that there would be that type of documentation of the work of the spirit and the role of the spirit in Appalachia, because that's what makes research in Appalachia so difficult, is because really, because of what we're getting ready to talk about, because of the role of the spirit and so much attributed to the spirit. And the way that that shaped sermonizing, we're going to talk about sermons in another episode, but the way that that shaped sermonizing, because it was viewed as not of the Holy Spirit if you had to use notes. And so the way that much research is done about what was being preached and what sermons, uh, how they were being preached, uh, comes from sermon manuscripts that we just don't have in Appalachia. And this is a direct connection to that. Absolutely.
0: I think as people listen to some of the snippets that I'm going to share from this document, and you can go read this document online, uh, just reach out to us and we'll we'll turn you on. to it's free. It's uh, open access. But I think we'll hear some things that really start to describe and maybe underlie many of our experiences as Appalachians, as preachers, as Christians in the area. So the, the name of this work is That part of the United States, which lies west of the Allegheny Mountains with regard to religion and morals. So that's the whole title of this work from 1812. When it talks about the area west of the Alleghenies, the Alleghanies are part of the Appalachian Mountain Range. And when they say west, they mean Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee. And this document, Matt, was written by John Shermerhorn and Samuel J. Mills. There's like an they call it an advertisement in the front of the book and like the front matter of the book. And it describes why they wrote this book. So in the summer of 1812, these two gentlemen did a tour through the western and southern parts of the United States, by which they mean the states that I mentioned earlier. One of them was from a Massachusetts Mission Society, and the other was from a Mission Society of Connecticut. Their goal was to not just perform missionary service, but to inquire about the religious and moral state of that part of the country. And they spent about a year doing field research in north central Appalachia, right where we are. And then they had to write a report back to their sending agencies. And that's what this publication is. It's the report of what they saw. And it's it's not real long. There's some cool stuff in here because they talk about the church denominations at that time. They talk about the membership of the each of the denominations in that time. For example, I'm looking at an image of Southern Ohio counties. So they have Athens County, Gallia County, Sciota spelled with an A, not an O on the end, <laughs> uh, Ross County, uh, so on and so forth. And they give the inhabitants. So in 1812, In Scioto County, Ohio, there were 3,399 people at that time, and all of the people went to a Methodist church, Matt, at that point. So there's some fun information in here. They give like a description of each of the denominations and what they witnessed and the interviews that they did.
2: Well, when you say that most of those people went to a Methodist church, that's exactly what we've talked about so many times, the role of the Methodist in evangelizing Appalachia. That's really the point of what we try to do with this podcast is just put one smaller brick in the wall as we're trying to build and trying to educate. So what is it that they found the role of the Spirit in central Appalachia? What did they find, Rex? Here's something that's interesting about it. They said that this would be true across
0: denominations, okay? So Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, there was some element of this particular experience of the Spirit that was across denominations. They would say it's characteristic of people in the region, period.
2: Just as a pause, so my family, most of them are Methodists, and for the longest time attended A little white frame, single room Methodist church. So the pastors of those churches are on a charge. So one pastor per many churches, however many churches it is, and he would go somewhere and preach early in the morning, go to another church and preach later in the morning, and and sometimes multiple times throughout the day, and rotate that depending on the week. The guy who would preach when the pastor couldn't be there was whoever was available in the community. And so if it was a Baptist preacher, so be it, if whatever, whoever it would be. But what was amazing is generally the theology and the methodology were exactly the same. Those were the guys on the circuit. And so now what we're hearing is there's a whole history of this, not just reflected in the methodology, but it's documented that this is not just a methodological thing, but it's also a theological thing.
0: That's right, for sure. So I'm just going to read pieces of this and kind of comment as I go. The section that I've isolated, it's on page 38 and it's about the Baptists. you know, I am a Baptist, so I figure let's start with ourselves here. But again, keep in mind that they say that this is a really a, something they observed across denominational lines. disclaimer up front, they're pretty harsh. Now I'm going to try to redeem this as we get on the other side of this, but just have an open mind. And listen to their report in 1812 of Baptists in Appalachia. Okay, here we go. And I'm just reading it from the page. The preachers of this denomination are generally illiterate. Few are possessed of good common English learning. And there are also some that can neither read the scriptures nor write their names. Learning with them as a body is rather ridiculed than desired. So learning is not desired, it's ridiculed. And while they pretend to despise all human knowledge, they profess to be led and directed by the Holy Spirit, both in desiring the office of an elder and in their public
2: performances. Does that sound familiar? That's so. My wife, growing up, went to a church just like this. And the pastors actually did pretty well, but the learning was limited. The services were what they would say was led by the Spirit. We're forgetting. Paul spit saying anything should be done decently in order and in order, but this leading of the spirit and which at times means chaos. at other times it means something else. but we're dealing with a document here. I was reading along with you as you were talking about this. we're dealing with a document here from 1812, 1812. and so you know we're more than 200 years removed from this, and not much has changed in Appalachia. That's the amazing thing. Not much has changed, Matt. And they next talk about, I'll try
0: to summarize this. They talk about how a preacher's called. Okay. How does this happen? So it starts with the preacher's own feeling that he's called. And then the congregation has an important role. Their role is they permit him to exercise his gift that he feels called to bring to the church. And then the congregation can really confirm or not confirm that gift, but they do not want to be found fighting against the Spirit. And so they generally would approve, It would be sort of a congregational approval, and then there's not like a a long waiting period for these people once they are confirmed by the congregation, you know, three to six months, they're ordained. So there's not a long wait, you know, there's no seminary, there's none of that, it's just three to six months, you're ordained. That was, I mean, I was in Bible college, but uh, my ordination was a little bit longer. It was about a four-year watching period. But had I stayed in my home church, I don't think it would have been that long. I think it would have been much shorter. So they talk about their manner of preaching on the next page. And they talk about how they try to excite the passions, to terrify, to raise into transports of joy rather than, and here's the criticism, to inform the mind, to convince the understanding, to convict the heart, and open the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. So that's blistering. What they're basically saying is, look, the preachers here, they appeal to the emotions, but they don't actually communicate truth.
2: You know, Rex, several years ago, I was preaching in a in a small church in Appalachia, and it was in one of those services that was led by the Lord. And this lady gets up and she raises her hands and and here's what she said: I feel the Lord. I feel and this just like almost incantation, just over and over and over. I feel the Lord. I feel the Lord. When I got up to preach, she was asleep before I made it to the pulpit. And I thought, whatever you felt, it wasn't the Lord, because if we notice, the goal isn't to rightly divide the word of truth. The goal is not to teach and to observe all things I have commanded you, but rather the goal is, as it says here excite the passions, terrify, and it says, it goes on, it says, they to this end, they dwell much on the torments of hell. Right.
0: It's funny how they say that because the writers say that they focus on the torments of hell, but then they don't follow that up with true spirituality, why the law condemns, the justice of sin's penalty, and then grace. Their criticism was, yeah, I mean, preach about hell, but you got to tell the rest of the story. You got to tell the truth about why hell is a reality, why sin is a problem, what Jesus came to do to rescue us and save us from an eternity in hell. Talk about the riches of his grace. Talk about the depth of his love. And he says, these things are passed over in silence.
2: This reminds me of how things like this are transmitted. The hawking, the the fever pitch, those types of things. We know that they were deeply influenced by the revivalistic preaching of Shubal Starnes. We know that. But we can also think of the content of the preaching. Now, we've got to think of this for a moment. At the beginning of the Great Awakening, we have really what is the sermon that is credited for igniting the fire of the Great Awakening is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. It is said that he read the sermon verbatim in a monotone voice in order to not do what they're talking about, in order to not to inflame the emotions. Now, if you've ever read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, you recognize that even if it's read in a monotone voice, it is filled with emotive language. But I think the difference is this, Rex, as I was reading this and thinking about just dwelling much on the torments of hell, their spiritual obligation, I think the difference is this Jonathan Edwards is America's greatest theologian. Hmm. When we think of Jonathan Edwards, we find a man who was one of the founders of one of our Ivy League universities. We find a man who has written. I mean, if you're talking about someone who came from America and wrote theologically, there's never been a man who wrote more thoroughly and more educated than Jonathan Edwards, and yet he also tied this together with that emotive language and tapping into the emotions. This is so important. The part of the brain in which people make decisions is the emotive part. It's not the logical part. We would all believe that we make all of our decisions based on logic alone, which that's not true. And so that tells us, even in our preaching, and especially in Appalachia, If we simply stand to give a doctrinal treatise and never appeal to the heart, then we've really missed the point. That doesn't mean that everything should be emotive, but rather... We have to recognize that's who God has made us to be. He's made us with him. He even describes himself in the scripture with emotive language. That's what an anthropopathism is. When we hear God speaking about himself, whether it be grieving or the desires of God or or all of those things, that's speaking in human language in order to convey the character of God. This matters in an amazing way, Rex. Yeah, that's right. When we get to it, that's one of the positive things about
0: Appalachia. We are okay with emotions. We're not always perfect at them, directing them or controlling them or experiencing them in a sanctified way, but emotions are okay. Emotions should be experienced in worship. Emotions should be experienced. And that's one of the great pieces of my heritage as an Appalachian person that I really, really appreciate. It's okay to cry in worship, it's okay to laugh. It's okay to you know, express joy, to say amen. I mean, th- these things are okay. And so that's one of the benefits, I think, of being an Appalachian Christian is that emotional heritage that we do bring. But what they've put their finger on is a kind of preaching that will tell a lot of wonderful stories and will appeal to only the emotion and then spiritualize scripture and never bring out its true meaning. That's the detriment. That's where, you know, we want our emotions and the truth of Scripture side by side. There's a lot that they go into here, Matt, but the final thing I want to point out, and again, if any of us in the conversation want to talk more about this document, I'd love that, but they talk more about the pneumatology or the thoughts about the Holy Spirit of the people in 1812. I'm just going to read a bit here. They say they pretend also to preach holy by the Spirit, by which they mean as the Spirit gives them utterance, in the manner the apostles were inspired. And it very often happens that at the same meeting, many of them who pretend to preach by the Spirit contradict each other. And so there's this failure to distinguish the spirits, and they go on about that for some time. But I want to come to, this is page 39 at the bottom, where they say, It is the mistaken notion of this spirit that has caused so much ignorance, error, and enthusiasm in the West, for the, quote, spirit within, as they term it, is made the guide of their actions and rule of their faith. For instance, if they feel a desire to be preachers, they have a call of the spirit. If they are greatly impressed that certain practices are right and others are wrong, it amounts to the authority of the spirit, that the course which the impressions direct is correct if they are highly elevated with agreeable and pleasant feelings under the preaching of certain doctrines and views of truth, they have the witness of the spirit within them that the one is true and the other false. And so they get more into this. And finally, they say, this is kind of the nail in the coffin from their point of view. They say, by this, it may be perceived And up above, Matt, it says, these observations on the spirit are applicable to several denominations. By this, it may be perceived that instead of following the doctrines of Christ to try the spirits by the law and testimony, by the word of God, they try the law and testimony by the spirit within. And that's the key to what they've observed. The Appalachian people have a history of trying the word that comes out in a meeting by the spirit within us and not the other way around of testing the spirit within us by the word of God.
2: And Rex, herein lies the source of so many heresies. For example, I'm going to pick out an easy one. Mormonism. The testimony of Mormonism is pray and ask God to confirm these things and see if you feel a burning in your bosom. Instead of testing the spirits by the word, we often hear, well, the spirit's leading me. Okay. We can know for certain that the spirit's not leading you if it's contrary to the word of God. Because this goes into, Rex, as you were reading this, I was thinking about the different connections. This goes not only into bibliology. What is scripture? Scripture is God speaking. And what was inspired? It wasn't the apostles that were inspired, it was the writing that was inspired. And so, what we know, at least with Paul, he's an easy one. We know that there's at least one, maybe two letters to the Corinthian church that were not inspired. We know that he wrote them he even references them but they were clearly not inspired and how do we know that because they're not in the bible and that testimony of how even our bible is put together we talked about in other episodes and and we could talk about in the future but this also goes into the very character of god i, I want mm-hmm. you to think about this for a moment if the spirit is indeed leading and we believe that god is triunity if we believe he is one what God and three who's, mm. then the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit cannot by nature contradict one another, or it would be a subversion and a destruction of the very character and person of God. This matters much because oh. I remember in college, This Chris, you may end up cutting this out, but I remember in college, there was a girl who came up to one of our guys, we would go out on Friday night to share Christ throughout the city. And there was this one particular girl who was, she was strange. She was one of those who constantly said, she was charismatic and constantly said she was led by the spirit. And the actions were contrary to what we would find in scripture, okay? We were getting off an exit and she insisted that we stop right there. And she jumps out of the car. We got out of the exit. She jumps out of the car and runs up the hill. And there was a man setting up at the top of the hill. And you could see the arms waving and you could see the guy gets up and you could. There was something that was being said to him that just befuddled him. And so she gets into the car and everybody, she comes back to the car. Everything is quiet. You know, we're young college students. So we had to know what was it that she said to him. She said, These are her words. The Holy Spirit told me that that was the guy that I was going to marry. And so I went up there to inform him of that. Well, here's what we know. If the Holy Spirit said that, then that would ultimately be confirmed in their marriage because a sovereign God can bring those things to pass. Well, here's what I can know for certain. It wasn't God that told him that because they didn't get married. And and a sovereign God is able to bring his will to pass. You know, when we look at this, Rex, there was a portion here that you stopped short of. And I want to read it. It says it was from this delusion that all the fantasism and enthusiasm sprung, which overspread the Western country a few years since and produced a flood of error. Yep. Yep.
0: So let's transition here because. There's been a lot of negative things said, and you know I'm a big believer in let's be self-critical more than turning our criticism out. We need to, you know, Lord, how do you want me to change? How do you want to sanctify me? How do you want to change me? So we've heard some of the criticism. So let me pull out a couple of positive things for us to transition. The positive things are this, the fact that we are people, I'm not exactly sure how to say this, but that we are in tune with emotions. Uh, that's not all negative. Okay, I want to I be clear about that. It's not all negative that we worship and go to church and preach or hear preaching with the heart. That's good. This is what we're going to talk about next. We want to do that with the word. The second thing that's positive is that while there's a lot of negative things that they say about the spirit within, the positive thing that we can pull from this and then transition more into is that we are a people who want to depend on the holy spirit that is a good thing that is a biblical thing but we need to know more about the holy spirit that's the thing we need to know more about the holy spirit and so that's why i want to go to a passage in first peter first peter chapter 1 and just take a minute to get to know the holy spirit because the dependence on the Holy Spirit's good, but not knowing the Holy Spirit on whom we depend, that's not good. And so, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we read starting in verse 10, and the first thing we're going to find is that this Spirit, this Holy Spirit is very much associated with the word of God. And now remember Jesus when he preached and when he ministered, what they said about him is that he had authority In his words. He had spiritual authority in his words, which gave him power really over all the unclean and evil spirits surrounding the people that day. So we want to think about what kind of word has authority. Okay. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, here's what the scriptures say: Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time, here it is, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so the prophets, when they prophesied and then after they prophesied, as they inquired about the prophecies, they did all of this, both the prophecy and the inquiring through the Spirit of Christ, okay, the Holy Spirit. And so the first thing we see is that this Holy Spirit is an ancient spirit. He's an eternal spirit. He's always been around, and he is at the center of revealing the Word of God and giving understanding about the Word of God. And it goes on in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. And so the same Holy Spirit who gave the prophets the Word of God, who gave the prophets illumination to understand the Word of God, who was with Jesus Christ, who was with Jesus Christ even on the cross, Hebrews 9, that is the same Holy Spirit, Matt, who was with, with the apostles who proclaimed and further revealed the truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ. and it is the same Holy Spirit who now preaches to you and to every generation since the gospel, this is the Spirit. He's the spirit of the Word. In Appalachia, we have this tendency to put the spirit and the Word against each other. That is not what Scripture does. The spirit is the breath of the word, brother. The word is spirited out as Second Timothy 3.16 says, right? It's breathed out by God. And so the first thing I want to say is we need to have a experience with the Spirit, a belief about the Spirit that is word-centered, because that's who He is. That's what He does. The second thing is that this same Spirit wants to renew your mind and prepare your mind. You see, one of the criticisms was that Appalachian people don't care about learning. They don't care about the mind and understanding. They only care about how they feel, right? And so in First Peter 1, he goes on in verse 13, what does he say? Therefore, preparing your minds for action. So this spirit who gave the word, what does he want to do? He wants to prepare your mind for action,
2: right? That's exactly right. And he's going to, as he prepares your mind for action, I mean, this is why Tri-State Bible College. This is why foundational discipleship matters. Because when we're rooted in the Word of God, We're not going to be tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but we're going to speak the truth in love and grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. We don't need to be afraid, Rex, of the Bible. We don't need to be afraid of studying the Bible and understanding what the Bible says, because amazingly enough, the Spirit's going to work to renew our mind, and as he does, we're going to know God More. We're going to know him better. We're going to have a clearer understanding of who he is. Rex, I was just thinking about this as you were speaking. It's amazing to me that many of the struggles that people face today, Christians, well, and I think we could say lost people as well, often face these struggles because of their misunderstanding or a distorted view of God. That sounds as though that it's disconnected, but it's not. When we believe that God is sovereign, we believe He's in control. That's going to be an answer to a lot of the anxieties, the depression. It's going to be an answer to a lot of those things. Now, I'm not saying all of them, but it's going to be an answer to a lot of those things. And it is that clear and biblical view of God by which Paul tells the church at Corinth, That I am to control my emotions and sanctification and honor and not be like the Gentiles who do not know God. So this out-of-control emotion that we find here in scripture, this out-of-control emotion that we often see, not only is not of the spirit, but it it is a misrepresentation of God Himself. And we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid of understanding what the Bible says, testing the spirits. By the word and not the other way around. Amen. He's developed this. Okay. It's spirit and word. And then
0: it's spirit and mind. It's spirit and mind. You know, you mentioned the scriptures about renewing our minds. In Ephesians, it says this. In Romans, it says this. In Colossians, it talks about the renewal of the mind. And it's the spirit that renews the mind. And it's the word that the spirit gave that renews the mind. And so we have to be people of the word and we have to be people of the spirit. And Peter goes on and he talks about two more things. He talks about our future and he talks about the world. We look forward to the future, a future that we, I'll say this, the Spirit is from the future. Did you know this? The Spirit's from the future. When Paul writes to the Ephesians in verses 13 and 14 of chapter one of Ephesians, he says, The promised Holy Spirit, so he's the Spirit from the past, he was promised, is the one who is your guarantee of the future full inheritance. So he is from the future, deposited as an initial installment of more things to come in you right now for the present moment. So he's the spirit of the future. If you want to have peace, if you want to have hope, if you want to have a proper perspective about today in light of tomorrow, you need the spirit who is the spirit of the word.
2: That's just excellent, Rex. That's excellent.
0: And then finally in verse 14, so in verse 13, Peter talks about the spirit being of the future as well. He says, and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But remember, this is said in the context of the spirit of Christ who has revealed this word to us. So it's the spirit who is at work here in setting our hope, preparing our minds. And then finally, verse 14, but we're not there yet. We're not to the fullness of the kingdom yet. Jesus hasn't returned yet. We still have to live in the world. And so, how do we do that? Well, how does the Spirit help us do that? Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And and Peter goes on about that. But listen, he's the spirit of the word, he's the spirit of the mind, he's the spirit who sanctifies us in the world. And he is the spirit of the future who's given us a little taste of the future today. And that's where our hope lies. And and so here's what I want to close with, Matt. As we think about the fair criticisms, okay, some of these criticisms are fair that they brought out. Some of them are a little harsh, I would say. And then we've, we've looked at scripture to say, okay, who is the spirit? What is the spirit trying to do? with the word in my mind, in the world, and for a future. How does this bring up to you, Matt, possibilities and problems about evangelism, discipleship, worship, leadership, church life, as we try to maybe recapture a biblical Appalachian
2: view of the Spirit? My first thought is this is so connected again. I reference this so often to Loyal Jones, As he essentially said, we define God. In Appalachia, we define our God. You can see the evidences of that. You can see the evidences of that in the way that Appalachian people relate to one another. Very emotive, very emotional. We see that played out, for example, in Hillbilly Elegy. Whether you watch the movie or read the book, there's a lot of emotional activity going on there. And this also becomes an opportunity to... Connect because when a person comes to faith in Christ, they only come to faith in Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's how a person is convicted of sin, drawn to repentance, given the gift of repentance. That all comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so there's going to be this balance, and that balance is not going to be a balance that finds itself in total emotion, but not totally divorced from emotion as well. No matter how emotional it may be, if a person comes to faith in Christ, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. I do think that there is also evidence that when you are committed in Appalachia to teaching the Bible, expository preaching, biblical discipleship, it's going to be an uphill battle because it's going to be counter the culture But that also shows you why some of the largest churches in Appalachia, in central Appalachia, are charismatic churches that don't find their roots deeply planted in the scripture. You can see that as well. And so there's a challenge here. We've got to teach the Bible, and we've got to trust in that spirit, trust in him to transform hearts because the methodology Of seeing people come to faith in Christ really must be the same. Preaching the word, the work of the Spirit, convicting of sin, of righteousness, and of the judgment to come, and trusting Him to draw people to to Himself.
0: One of the things I think about is just like 1 John 4 says, just like we've seen here in 1 Peter, the Spirit is always teaching truth about Christ. And I think that as we evangelize, as we Disciple, even as we worship and lead worship, I think what we're going to encounter, and this is where we have to work and pray, we're going to encounter in all of those scenarios an openness to spirituality. Okay. Historically, now that could be changing with along with the rest of the culture in certain ways, but historically, Appalachian people have been open to spiritual things. Okay. However, they are resistant toward you telling them what spiritual things to believe and do. And so this is where we have to find ways that tap into that spiritual curiosity, if I can call it that, or spiritual openness. We can have another episode where that goes a very dark way, the spiritual openness. But let's just, just talk about it in the positive light here today we've got to find ways and methods. By methods, I don't mean manipulation. I just mean ways to communicate and relate to people. That cracks the door open for Scripture. Scripture is God's voice, and Scripture is God's Word. It's supposed to come in like a sword into my soul and spirit, and that's invasive, and that's convicting, and it touches with the point of its tip right on the issues that I need to hear. And I think that we need to pair uh, in our ministries and in our relationships that spirituality with this, okay, what does the word say? Because I don't want my spirituality to just be a within. I need it to be God's word coming in from without and being paired with my openness to the spirit. There's a lot there for evangelism because when you're evangelizing people, you might find uh, like an initial openness, but then you're going to get a closeness, right? Initial openness and then close once you try to tell me what I'm supposed to believe. And then discipleship can be the same way. Well, you know, you think that way, but I think. (laughs) And so I think that some of the ways that you can apply this spirit who is the spirit of the word, the spirit of the mind, the spirit. Uh, who sanctifies in the world in the spirit of our hope with the needs of evangelism, discipleship, worship, leadership in Appalachia is finding ways to emote the way that we emote and to depend on the spirit the way that we long to depend on the spirit and be filled with the spirit through the activities and sort of worship practices in Appalachia. For example, when you testify. You should testify in truth. And so use the word of God when you testify. Find something in scripture to share in your testimony, not just what you feel, use what you feel, but make sure that you're also using scripture and testing it with scripture. Secondly, make sure that we're singing true things. Singing is one of the most emotional things that we can do in a worship service or. Or privately, when we're suffering or when we're filled with joy and we sing, make sure the things that we're singing are true things, things that align with the Word of God. And I think that when we're preaching, I mean, this maybe is the major impact here. We need to make sure that we're preaching the Word. And this goes maybe without saying, but it needs to be said that preachers and teachers need to be spending time in the scriptures preparing. Because this is the Spirit's word. If the Spirit is going to say something on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, He's going to say it through the word that He's given to you. And so we want to spend time getting to know that word so that what we say in the meetings with the church are from the word and by the Spirit. And then finally, in our relating, so in our testifying, in our singing and our preaching. And then finally, in our relating, I think one of the ways that we can relate, whether that's evangelism, discipleship, or just household or work relationships, we want to depend on the Spirit in those relationships and scenarios, but we also want to do it in accordance with the Word of God. So, I need to know the Word. And I would say this, one of the things we can do to help with relating according to the Spirit and according to the Word is by learning to pray the Word of God. Prayer is an emotional thing. It taps into our heart. It taps into our minds. It taps into the Word of God, or it should. When you pray, do you have your Bible open. When you pray for relationships, when you pray for people, when you pray for people who whom you want to evangelize, when you pray for the people you're discipling or teaching, pray the Scriptures for them. So, unite your emotion. Unite the filling of the Spirit with the Word of God.
1: The Holy Spirit will never teach anything outside of truth about Christ. Like Rex said earlier in the podcast, we must be careful when attributing works of the Holy Spirit to make sure our attributions are scriptural. The book that Rex was reading from is titled A Correct View of That Part of the United States Which Lies West of the Allegheny Mountains with Regard to Religion and Morals And you can get a copy on Amazon And as you work to bring the gospel to people wherever you are And if you have questions, be sure to reach out to the Appalachian Ministry Institute and Tri-State Bible College today Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute exist as a resource And no matter what need you may have, Rex Howe and Dr. Matt Shamblin want you to reach out to them today. Rex Howe is the president of Tri-State Bible College, and you can contact him at rex.howe at tsbc.edu. And you can reach out to Dr. Matt Shamblin at the Appalachian Ministry Institute by email matt.shamblin at tsbc.edu. The Level Paths podcast is an outreach of Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute.